You're listening to Last Word Soccer Club Radio. Only here, lastwordonsports.com. What's up, Internet? My name is Matt Pollard, and you are listening to Last Word Soccer Club Radio here at lastwordonsports.com. It is Thursday, December 7th, 2023. Just two days out of 48 hours from now, listeners. MLS Cup will be in the books, assuming there's not some super long rain delay going on or we don't go into like 12 rounds of playoffs. So we're here to talk about the MLS Cup Conference Finals, which took place this past weekend, and then preview the 27th edition of, no, excuse me, 29th, I think. I can't do math. In any case, MLS Cup, MLS Cup 2023 is on Saturday, folks, and we're here to talk about it. My name is Matt Pollard. Um, joining me now are, uh, we'll start with uh, Rachel Krigger. Rachel, how are you? Doing well. Excited for uh, excited for MLS Cup. A uh, little upset I can't make it, but it is what it is. Just right next door uh, to me in Columbus. Columbus about like a three, three and a half hour drive for me. Um, maybe next time. Okay, and then uh, joining us from across the pond, uh, Jamie Rook. Jamie, how are we? I'm very good, thank you. I'm also, yeah, very much looking forward to MLS Cup. As we've said many times before, it's felt like such a long, long season. So it's quite a good thing that I think it's going to come to an end. And hopefully it's with an exciting game we go out on a high. Mm -hmm. And then, Jamie, I have to imagine this afternoon kickoff's easier for you. It's what, going to be a night game? Yeah, I think it's 9 p.m., 10 p.m. here, so very reasonable. I'll be in bed at a good time, so I can't complain about that either. All right, so it'll be closer to, it's like, uh, I know La Liga does some 9 p.m. local kickoffs, and it was a, it was a late evening game, that one uh, PSG match that I went to that's also typical as well. So you get to have your 3 o'clock, uh, Jamie, go get some dinner, and then maybe get a pint, and then head home, and uh, hopefully be in your... Hopefully being your bread in your pajamas by the time we're hitting penalties, assuming that it comes to that. But let's get into it, folks. Um, we'll start by recapping the semifinals. And I think we should start with in terms of single game, in terms of single game playoff elimination matches, I'm not sure that I've had anything as crazy as what we saw with Hell is Real this past Saturday at TQL Stadium, FC Cincinnati 2, Columbus Crew 3 in extra time. Fairly even first half, but two really good finishes, one from Brandon Vasquez, another from Luciano Costa. Saw FCC go into the half up 2-0, and then an awakening midway through the second half from Columbus Crew, technically an own goal from Alvis Powell, and then uh, Diego Rossi scoring in the 86th minute as it was kind of a back-and-forth game, and Columbus really trying to go for a bunch of home-run passes, and finally one of them converted. And then, fittingly, Rachel, your boy, Christian Ramirez, back uh, with his wife in the hospital, potentially having contractions to give birth to their first child, scores a goal in the 115th minute with the wristband from the hospital visit still on his wrist. Um, And so uh, hell is real. Uh, The devil officially wears black and gold. And on Saturday night, we will be dining in Columbus. Rachel, your thoughts generally on this game and uh, is Ramirez him? Oh, Ramirez is so him. I mean, to to go into that match and score, like you said, with the hospital bracelet still on, 
I mean, what a baller move. He's just, you know, I said it last time, just gushing about Christian Ramirez. And, and ever since, you know, the, the time in, in Europe, playing with Houston, playing with LAFC, he played with a bunch of teams in MLS. Um, and it seems like what he's got going for him in Columbus is really working out and really, um, really sticking with him. So just happy to see him you know, get on the scoreboard and make an impact in such a big game. And you never know, he might get a USMNT look in, in January camp again and, you know, be right back into the fold with, with the national team. There's still plenty of time and, you know, he's still, he's still super young. So, um, but yeah, like you said, just a crazy, crazy match. Um, yeah, you know, I kept looking at the score and, and checking, you know, pulling it up on my phone every once in a while as much as I could and just seeing, oh, well, clearly Cincinnati's going to run away with this, right? And it, at halftime. And then, um, hell is real. And it just got absolutely crazy with Powell and Rossi scoring. And then, of course, Ramirez getting the game winner. Um, but just a fun, exciting match. And that's what you want in MLS. That's what gets people watching, uh, watching the, watching the games. Um, and just a really, really good, um, really good rivalry for the postseason that was on display. Jamie, I think the, I think it's really easy for the neutral or someone just looking back at the stats to see Cincinnati score two goals, you know, in the first half and then eventually bottle it, go 2-2 into the 90 and then Columbus crew scoring it in extra time. What did you make of how back and forth it was and how the scoreline did not necessarily reflect in the moment the narrative or the the field advantage and the tilt that was going on? Because I feel like it was a KG in the first half and then KG threw and then gradually Columbus had a really good surge and then since he had a surge in the start of stoppage time. I mean, this was from a, a narrative and a back and forth standpoint. This is fantastic for a neutral and probably just um you know a a hospital visit for anyone from ohio as you say yeah i think cage is like such a perfect word to use because in that first half it wasn't a case of cincinnati necessarily blowing away their opponents they think total across the 120 minutes they only managed three shots on target two of them obviously being the first half goals so it was clearly a case of they were able to take take those chances when it mattered most and We've seen that a fair bit this season with those two goal scorers, Brandon Vazquez and Luciano Acosta. They have been the game winners. They've been the difference makers. You look at um, at the back, the issue that Pat Noonan had there with obviously Matt Miazga's suspension. Um, Hagland is out as well. So it was a case of having to put in a few less, less first players, especially in a big game like this, whereas it's new territory for Cincinnati, given how poor the last few years have been at times. Um, yeah, it was very much a case of, um, trial and error and they had to, had to chuck in some players that maybe weren't used to these big moments as much as someone like Miazka who'd been such a leader all season. And then it just turned on its head for the first half of the second half. It was again, I still thought it was fairly even and in the balance, but. It did start to get to a point where you thought Cincinnati have almost, they're getting what they deserved after such a promising season, only for it to then capitulate in that last 15 minutes going into extra time as well. And then, yeah, as you say, for Christian Ramirez scored the, scored the goal in the last round and now he scores again. It's, it's the perfect time for him to pop up, having been out, or out in the cold almost at points this season. He hasn't been a star man. Obviously they've got, 
Cucho Hernandez, Diego Rossi being the star players so much this season, particularly Cucho. And then it's almost a lot unlikely source. He's had his moments, but in general, it's not been the best season for Christian Ramirez on a whole. So from an individual standpoint, with obviously the emotion that you talked about, well, it's a perfect way to end it for him in this rivalry game. Yeah, Christian Ramirez almost writing his own legacy from a playoff heroic standpoint. You know, some some Alan Gordon energy. Uh, Rachel, you'll recognize that name. Most of our listeners will. Um, I, I think the big thing for me in this one, I almost don't, I, I don't want to say that Cincinnati scored too soon or that Cincinnati took a two goal lead too early. If you look at the XG, Cincy across the 120 had 1.1 and Columbus crew had 3.2. But that's not uncommon where. The, the, the nuance to those numbers is that Columbus, is that Cincinnati only produced, um, like 0.7 XG after their second goal. And then most of Columbus's XG came after they were already down 2-0. And the two big chances that you had in extra time were the Almondson shot and then the Christian Ramirez goal. And obviously the two big chances you would have had from an XG standpoint in stoppage time for Cincinnati would have been both of the um, uh, Bupanga opportunities, which were technically offside, so don't, they don't register at shots, so you don't register an XG of a tap-in with a goalkeeper out of position from five yards out, which would be, I don't know, 0.9 plus expected goals. And so from that standpoint, I think that shows that Columbus was really chasing the game. And I think that was almost, this is where, and I'll come to you in a minute on this, Rachel, where I think not having Matt Miazga because of the suspension and then Nabomo also being injured. And I can't remember if he subbed in to this game. I don't have that in front of me. Let me check. He otherwise, did. he did. Yeah. He did. Yeah, Thank he you, did. Jamie. Um, Thank so- you, minute. 85th minute. So, okay, he comes in after he comes in and then Diego Rossi immediately scores. So that's got to be gut wrenching for Pat Noonan, who thinks that he's putting him in to see the game out. And obviously they can't even make it to penalties after that. So it almost the the lead set it up where Cincinnati could put numbers behind the ball go in transition with Lucho, with Brendan Vasquez, with some of their wide players, certainly a Barrial, and that fits to them guarding against their weakness, given that you had Alvis Powell in a center-back role, Mascara not in his usual role, and then not having Matt Miazga, who's the organizer of the defense, and then Nobomo in front of them, who I think is really the anchor, the pivot of what they're able to do in the back half of the midfield as well. And they almost survived it, and credit to Wilford Nancy, who changed a few things at halftime. Uh, credit to him for the substitutions that he made as well. Certainly Julian Greshel and Ramirez coming on in the 65th minute, I think certainly changed things. Um, and then obviously you had, um, what was the other? I think those were the two big substitutions. I, I would say that Kevin Molino was refreshing in extra time because I think Matan had run himself really into the ground, but it was set up really the game despite Columbus being down 2-0 at halftime, I think was set up Will Wilford Nancy's star as a head coach and his tactical changes and the style of play, given what the opponent was doing, was set up for them to ultimately, for them to um, to outlast Cincinnati and then finally break down the dam. Um, Rachel, it's a lazy narrative, but I think it has validity at this point, obviously. If Matt Miazga is starting in this game, does Cincy win this game 2-1 in 90? Um, I, Part of me wants to say yes. I The whole reason I didn't pick Columbus, or I I picked Columbus to win this game in our, in our last episode, 
was because I didn't want Cincinnati to win without Miazga because of the year he has had. Um, yes, he has done some stupid things to warrant a correct suspension. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I didn't really want the team winning without him because he was so, so good. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it's a shame. I, th- I think Cincinnati wins, um, wins at home. But then again, um, I think, I think Matt, you had said the last time we were on the show that they've maybe had eight hell is real meetings. And there's only been one win for Cincinnati at home. Something, something along that line. Um, uh, the last, um, so the two wins that Cincinnati has in Hell Is Real at home, Rachel, um, was during was in the back half of 2020. So during COVID, no fans. And you have to go then all the way back to their first ever meeting in the Open Cup quarterfinals, semifinal. It might have been earlier round than that when since he was still at Nippert Stadium and still in the USL Championship. So if you're talking about that win for Cincinnati defining the entry then of Cincinnati into MLS and then defining the start of that rivalry. This is now a clear pivot where for, you know, Cincinnati and Columbus could play each other a hundred more times in the playoff before global warming sinks Ohio down into hell. And Columbus fans will always be able to say, we won this first game. And if you top that up with winning your second MLS Cup in a year, that's a really, that's really good banter to shut up your, uh, your opponents when your rival is arguing, well, they won the shield. Yeah. And I, I think you just said it right there. I mean, I do think if Matt Miazga plays this game, that Cincinnati has a better chance. Um, I don't know if they'll win. I just, I think that. For as good as Cincinnati has been all year, I mean, Columbus has just been hitting their stride at the right time, um, and it's just been totally uphill for them since, like, October, um, even late September. So, I don't know. I, I want to I say yes, that they would have won with, with him, but I don't know. Jamie, you're in a good position to talk about this, given that Cincinnati in a normal year or in a, in a league in Europe would say, well, we're not having playoffs right now. They've already won the championship. How does this loss in the semis when they were in the conference final, when they were up 2-0 at halftime and losing that to a rival, how should that color how we think about this FC Cincinnati team that had coach of, or not coach of the year because Bradley Carnell won it, but that won the supporter shield made a very good run in League's Cup, and then had the MVP of Lucho Acosta. How should this loss color, in retrospect, their season? Well, I think one interesting way to look at it is um, Giorgio Cialini was speaking about the Cincinnati team, and he said he thought they were easily the best team in the league, but then he also made the point of they're not playing an MLS Cup, and that is in, in obviously, this this culture of sports, it is the playoffs that is is the pinnacle. So whilst obviously they do have the pride of winning the shield, there is the the fact that they have missed out on on the major run. I can obviously speak from a Rev's point of view when that happened a couple of years ago. Obviously broke the points record, won the shield, and Bruce Arena was very vocal in saying, Okay, that's cool, but at the same time, I'm here as a coach to win MLS Cup. That is the major honor I care about. And I think the large majority of coaches and players in MLS would echo those sentiments. So whilst it was obviously a very good season from Cincinnati, they made the Eastern Conference their own. They were easily the best team in not only the East, but the whole league. I think from a neutral point of view, you do have to obviously think that the best of the best are going to win 
the cup as well as the shield. Or no, I know obviously it's not something that's done every year, but it's still a case of the fact that this Cincinnati team maybe next year need to go and win the shield to really have a true like legacy in the sport from this generation as opposed to just winning the shield one year and then going out in the playoffs to their their rivals of all teams. Yeah, really good points there, Jamie. And there was um you know there was I saw some comments from um Pat Noonan, the head coach of FC Cincinnati, when they officially clinched the supporter shield, saying that that was a more important trophy for him. And I thought those comments were interesting, given Pat Noonan obviously was a longtime assistant under Bruce Arena and then even played under Bruce Arena. I remember at least with the LA Galaxy, maybe at some other clubs as well. I can't remember. And so I, I wonder if that was genuinely how he feels or was he trying to jazz up the shield? Because obviously, you know, the the Open Cup is the least important trophy that you can win as an MLS team. But it's never, you know, it's it's not a dumb trophy if you've won it, for example. So um, I'm, I'm wondering how he feels about that that in the macro but certainly I, I could see where especially if Columbus go through and win this that FC Cincinnati fans are feeling bitter or feeling like the the season ended with a bad taste in their mouth but I, I think as time passes and this wound heals and hopefully eventually Cincinnati finally gets a home win in front of their supporters at TQL against Columbus they'll be able to look back on this season with joy and a sense of accomplishment in the same way that Jamie I'm sure there's um you know there's still seen as that 2021 team for the New England Revolution did have success even though they didn't win the ultimate goal of winning MLS Cup um last thing that I kind of want to say about this because I thought tactically it was interesting and it'll get into our points for previewing MLS Cup I thought this was an absolute coaching masterclass in terms of a playoff game I mentioned you know this is top five for me all time in terms of single game elimination playoff games that I've seen in the MLS Cup playoffs and I would say that at the coaching level as well with the way that Pat Newton set up his team given the absences that he had and how he tried to pivot with that. And I already mentioned what uh, Wilfred Nance did um, really, really well. I do think that Columbus was set up well to take I do think Cincinnati was set up well to take advantage of Columbus's weaknesses to start off the game particularly um, with uh, Bupenza and then Barriel working on that left against uh, Farsi and Morena, or Marrera who I thought at times it made it easier for Cincinnati to go into halftime up 2-0, given how poor they were in key moments on the ball. And I think if they're as wasteful in possession, albeit trying to hit home run passes against LAFC, I think they will be punished by Dennis Buongo, um and LAFC more easily than FC Cincinnati was necessarily able to punish them. But just that second half was just so frenetic because it was almost like the, it was like a game of FIFA or now EAFC where you're just immediately going for a counterattack every single time. And then, so you're just, it's just, Every time you win the ball back, it's direct pass after direct pass, and it's either going to be three, four passes into an open break on goal or an empty netter, or you're just immediately going to turn it over, and then the opponent's going to be back in their their base setup offensively. And that made it for chaotic viewing that was super exciting for me and probably extremely frustrating for both fan bases. <clears throat> Let's move on to the second playoff game that we have that was a 1-0 victory for LAFC, or excuse me, 2 nil victory for LAFC at home to Houston Dynamo. Um, goals from Ryan Hollingshead in a very similar way off of a set-piece opportunity, and then an own goal from Escobar um, set up really well from some dynamic attacking from LAFC. 
Um, Jamie, I think unfortunately this, uh, if the, if hell is real was the perfect one for the neutral, this one went absolute chalk. I was worried that Houston wasn't going to have the juice in midfield and that LAFC was going to punish them. And unfortunately they did. And Houston's fun Cinderella run ends, uh, in the final, in the conference final. Yeah, I can't, I can't speak too much to this game. I was, I wasn't able to watch it partly due to the fact it was probably at two or three a.m. my time. I can quite stay up for that. But no, I think, yeah, when you look at, um, what LAFC, LAFC have done over the years in this, in this era, whether it be under Bob Bradley or now Steve Trunlow, they have been a team that does always seem to show up in the playoffs and whether it was in years gone by when Carlos Vey has been the, the main man and obviously now, the battle and been handed on more to Dennis Buanga. I think, yeah, it's just a case of them being so, so clinical and well drilled when it matters most. And in comparison to a lot of these Houston players and this modern Houston team, they haven't really been there the last few years. They've been a team that is maybe not even making the playoffs, let alone being in contention at this late stage. So yeah, it's just a case of LAFC knowing what they needed to do to advance and doing it pretty well there wasn't from what I've seen in the highlights and it, it wasn't yeah it wasn't the 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 one-sided game given that I think Houston pretty much dominated possession for large parts of the game but yeah still LAFC were able to to clinch the winning moments where when they came whereas Houston couldn't quite do the same Good points there, Jamie. You know, I think absolutely Ben Olsen went there to say we're going to play our game and if we execute it, we give ourselves an opportunity. They just didn't execute. Rachel, we've seen this Houston team come alive and really grow up. Corey Baird maybe hasn't quite warranted the contract. He, he has not performed in the big moments to warrant the contract that supposedly he's been wanting from Houston Dynamo. But bossy, young, exciting player. We know Coco Kerski is fantastic, probably going to be sold as well. Did this um, Was Houston naive? What what didn't work out in terms of their experience in the knockouts of League's Cup and in the knockouts of going on and ultimately winning the Open Cup at a messy, less inter-Miami? How did that not show through? Or was this just LAFC said, we're better than you, we're set up to take advantage of your weaknesses, we're a bunch of old vets, and we're just going to, we're going to experience you into the offseason? Yeah, I I think it's the latter. I think they just said, you know, we're the veterans. We've we've been here before and we're going to experience you. I like that phrase, experience you to the off season. Um I was surprised that LAFC took 44 minutes to get on the board um with that Holland's head goal. Um if you ask Ben Olsen what happened, he would say the pitch. Um because I know he was not happy about um the conditions said something along the lines of, "Well, they have concerts here like every 3 days." Um I mean, come on. LAFC has been in the league for, what, five years now at this point? Um, come up with a better excuse and, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll give you a listen. Um, but I don't think, I don't think Houston played bad in this game. You know, like Jamie said, they, they really dominated the possession. Um, but LAFC isn't really a dominant possession team. They're more of a counterattack and, and hit you, hit you where it hurts team. Um, I think, I think Houston was definitely the more disciplined side of the two, um, with, with less fouls. Um, although they, they did have two yellow cards and LAFC didn't get one, which, hmm, a little questionable. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think Houston did all the right things. I just think that LAFC was better. Um, just shots weren't going in for Houston. Um, again, just, I, 
I'm blanking on his name, goalkeeper, Crapo. Crapo has been really, really good in the offseason, um, saving all five of Houston shots. And yeah, I just I, I just think that as as long as they have him in net, LAFC, they're gonna they're gonna be good for a very long time. Um and they only get better with him in net. Um he's just been outstanding in the playoffs. Not to be obsessed with the stats, but again, for the sake of completeness, listeners, Houston in the 90 minutes uh, accumulated an expected goals of 0.5, so half a goal, um, and 20% of that 50%, or excuse me, I should say 20% of their total XG, so 40% of the 50% uh, came on an opportunity for Corey Baird just in the seventh minute of play and maybe that was naivete or Corey Baird not being as good as Carlos Vela or Dennis Boanga where if they finish that you get a better opportunity and you see gradually the two teams XGs are pretty even and then Ryan Hollingshead has by far the best opportunity of the game um his goal which had a 57% chance of being a goal LAFC amassed a total of 1.8 it's hard to square that with LAFC stats because obviously their second goal was an own goal but then you just look at that it's opportunity on counterattacks after that goal as Houston has to then double down on their possession and they basically didn't do a whole lot after that it was a bunch of low quality opportunities and high volume uh, relatively spread out apart so yes Houston Dynamo on the eye test didn't necessarily get played off the pitch, but they had a lot of possession without a purpose. And that shows the savviness and the tactical flexibility of LAFC. And they played their game and they're executed because they're a very good, very expensive, very veteran team. And Houston clearly showed, um, clearly is not yet that as well. Um, but credit to Ben Olsen, fantastic season and all of the things. Um, Rachel, give me a give me a postmortem. What we will remember about this Dynamo season, and then similarly, they won a trophy, which is kind of which isn't a thing that happens a whole lot for them this day these days. I have to think we think that's part of the success, but I do have to wonder: is there uh, unless they keep this going, unless ownership is bought in and everything, that a window could potentially be closing? Because I think. Kareski is probably off to Europe this summer. What do they do with that money? And Hector Herrera Ache Ache is going to be 37 next year. Yeah, I think the postmortem is relish in that open cup win. Um, you get a trophy in the in the trophy cabinet, and um, you know, there's gonna be a lot of people that say, Oh, well, they won it against um an inter Miami list messy. I think I got my words mixed up there. But either way, um they won it without um inter Miami having messy, but that doesn't change um the the wins that it took to get to that final and then of course the final itself. So um, I think a lot of Houston fans can just be really proud about the the turnaround that Ben Olsen and company have have led. And, you know, I was a little bit skeptical at first about Olsen coming to Houston and completely proved me um, and a lot of other people wrong. So, uh, like you said, ownership just needs to buy in, um, get get some good players with some with some cash um, and, and just see what see what happens. Before we move on to the MLS Cup final listeners, <clears throat> I want to thank one of our sponsors, Athletic Greens. Uh, they have a signature AG1 formula, and it is perfect for your daily nutrition and gut health support. AG1 solves two of the most important health needs. Well, first, building nutrition that your body needs every single day, and then also building long-term gut health. Uh, together, this can help fuel your entire body, and it can impact everything from your sleep 
to digestion, energy, mood, immunity, and even the health of your hair, skin, and nails. Follow the link in the show notes below uh, to get started with AG1 today. Thank you to Athletic Greens for sponsoring Last Word on Sports. All right, fam, let's get into it. Saturday, December 9th, 2023, 4 p.m. Eastern Time at Lower.com Field. Columbus Crew hosting LAFC. This is on Apple TV. It is also on Fox and in Espanol on Fox Deportes. Um, Rachel, I'll come to you first. Um, give me your perspective, just general, like big picture on this final. And were you, if, if we went back in time to February and I told you LAFC versus Columbus, could you see it? Um, no. <laughs> No, for a lack of better phrase, now I would have I would have thought Cincinnati would have been in. Um, LAFC, I could kind of believe it, but at the same time, you know, Sporting Kansas City, Seattle, the the big wigs um, in the Western Conference are, are certainly ones that you you come to mind whenever thinking about MLS Cup. Um, but it's it's exciting. I'm I'm excited. Um, as somebody who lives about three and a half hours away from Columbus, I, I know where my loyalties lie. <laughs> um, but I, I think just this game in general, I think it's going to be, I think it's just going to be who has the best counterattack. Um, because LAFC, they're quick. They can get you. They play out of the back really well. Um, Columbus, they're, I, I think they're a lot faster than um, LAFC are. Um, and I like their, their play on the wings a lot better. Um, Christian Ramirez, obviously we said is hot. Um, he is just scoring at the right times when he needs to be. Um, and, and of course you can't underestimate Diogo Rossi and, and the other just attacking players they have. Darlington Nagby has been here before uh, a thousand times for Columbus. So, um, yeah, it should be a really good game. I'm excited to watch. Jamie, you followed Columbus very, very closely based in the Eastern Conference. What do you see for them as their biggest strength? Where Where is their biggest area to take advantage of and beat LAFC in this final? Um, that's interesting. Interesting how to think about it, whether you say like biggest strength and where they can get the biggest advantage. So I think particularly in this postseason, I feel like I've been so impressed with their midfield. I think... Um, Obviously, as as um, Rachel mentioned, Darlington Nagbe's been here before. He, he knows what he's doing in these big games. And then um, the what's the other centre mid? My mind's blanking. The young Aiden Morris. Aiden Morris. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, I think they've worked so well together. I think in in all the games so far in the playoffs, they've been such a good duo, knowing when to when to stay and when to go. And I think yeah, with Obviously, Nagby's experience had having done it with Portland and Atlanta, and then Morris is such a mobile player that can just run and run. I think midfield is obviously a big area for them, but then on the flip side, you could then turn around and obviously highlight LAFC's midfield, whether it would be with um, Cifuentes, uh, no, um, Ilya Sanchez, and also um, Tillman. They, they, they both teams are going to have such strong areas all over the field, so I would say. Columbus's midfield is what's been most impressive to me, along with obviously Coach Hernandez and his his ability to continue scoring goals. Um, in the playoffs, there's been other players that have chipped in well, such as Christian Ramirez, which I think is is perfect really when when you have a striker that maybe is get marked out of the game because they know how effective he can be. I mean, 
He obviously got that goal from halfway line a couple of rounds ago, but that was a freak instant. But in general, it's been expected more from Rossi and Matan and, and Romero to step up as well. So I think, yeah, I would. I know I've said more than one area then, but the midfield and then just Kucho Hernandez's superb ability to be in the right positions and find the back of that could, and I think will probably make the difference for Columbus on the day. Yeah, I think the styles make fights, as we would say it. And so I think you you very clearly, I already know how this game is going to start. I think LASC comes out in their 4-3-3. I think they kind of have a mid-level press, not not a mid-blocker. They, they draw their line of confrontation barely on their side of the midfield line. And Columbus is going to try death by a thousand cuts of they're going to try a bunch of through balls and then passes around and then going out wide and everything. And they're going to try a hundred of those. And eventually Matan is going to hit one perfect ball that Chiellini isn't able to get to. And Diego Rossi is going to be in space and Cucho is going to be there. And hopefully they'll be able to finish in those moments as well. And vis-a-vis LAFC is hoping that enough of those are mistakes where then their midfield can then play out of pressure and Darlington Nagby, Aiden Morris can't make a run. One of their fullbacks for Columbus is in a bad situation and they're able to punish them on the counterattack or earn a set piece to then just, you know, go to Ryan Hollingshead because apparently Ryan Hollingshead is now the set piece champion of the world despite being a fullback. Um, Rachel, what do we see in uh, in LAFC from a strike standpoint? You know, I, I look at the midfield and I see Aiden Morris and Nagby. Nagby's certainly the old head on there. You know, he's potentially going to win his fourth MLS Cup on Saturday. But Aiden Morris, we've seen, has been a little bit up and down. And I compare that to an older but a slower midfield. This is almost like 2018 World Cup final France versus um, versus Croatia in in that regard. Where, where are you looking at for LAFC to have an advantage? Um, they handle chaos really well. <laughs> um, and I think that comes with just MLS Cup in general. Um, I, I think that LAFC has a lot of individuals who play together as a team really well. Um, and not a lot of teams can say that, um, both in the men's and the women's side. Um, I think there's just some really standout players. I really like, um, Kellen Acosta and what he brings to LAFC. Um, he's on that, on the same side as Buwanga. So they have a nice little partnership. Um, I think, I always say his name wrong. Ely? 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 Um, Ilie Sanchez. Ilie. Okay. Ilie. You can just, you can also just say Sanchez, Rachel. We know who you're talking about. (laughs) So Ilie Sanchez, I I, I think he gets, I don't think he gets enough credit in the midfield. Um, Obviously he has a ton of stars um, around him. A couple national teamers as well um, for the U S that obviously in MLS get a lot more attention. but I, I think he commands the midfield very well. And um, Matt, you actually said this before we started recording, but what version of Carlos Vela are we going to get on Saturday? And I think that's a really good question to ask of, of LAFC. Yes, Bawanga has been carrying um, the bulk of the load with scoring, um, and he's done a phenomenal job. He won the Golden Boot for a reason and has really hasn't slowed down in the playoffs. Um, but I'm very curious to see how Vela does. Um, he's getting older, he's not getting any younger. Um, if if he just turns it on and, and plays the way that we expect him to in MLS Cup. I look at this similarly, Rachel. I think there's, there's areas where Columbus has experience and quality that I think is better than or can take advantage of. 
LAFC, but I think on the whole of the, if you're look, the more balanced, more experienced team is certainly LAFC in that regard. Uh, Chiellini is the best, albeit the oldest and most injury prone and most yellow card prone center back that you have in this competition. I would say no question. Darlington Nagby is the best midfielder that you have in this option in, um, as well. And I would say Dennis Bowanga is the best player on the field. I would say the second best player on the field is probably Cucho Hernandez. I look at this as kind of subtly being, you know, Diego Rossi bounced out from LAFC, I think before they won MLS Cup or was Rossi with LAFC last year. So, um, you know, there's certainly some emotions going around for him. And then he obviously left to go to Europe at a time that it made sense for LAFC. But then potentially he's back and knows his, um, you know, opposing team better. I don't know that we've had a I'd have to think back has there been another MLS Cup final that you've had where the um where there was a team that had like such a had an advantage in that they had a former teammate playing on the opponent that matched up well against them. And so I wonder if Rossi has that. So I, I kind of wonder those are the things that are bouncing around in my head. Those are the questions that both teams are going to ask that is then going to determine um what happens from a result standpoint in terms of turning our focus on to weaknesses. I think this game rather simply given the stylistic difference between the two teams comes down to is Columbus sharp with the ball and are they in a good position set up positionally to when they lose the ball in order to counter attack. I kind of wonder, do we see a, wrinkle or some change or some nuance from Wilford Nancy to try and combat that particularly with what how what they are expecting from Dennis Bowanga in transition and Rachel your question of repeating my question of what version of Carlos Vela shows up I think is a good one I think if we get the Carlos Vela that we've seen in the playoffs I'm not as worried about him as I would have been last year but so between Nagby and Morris in the double pivot and then Camacho in front of them do we see a slight change in terms of how they're building out in possession with one of the wing backs going forward and then the three at the back in order to combat that if they can if they can prevent the fire rather than have to put out the fire I think they're in a better position because Dennis Buonga is better than Brandon Vasquez Buong, uh, uh, Bupenza or Dominic Baji. And so I think that's the critical point of what Columbus does in possession. Are they able to unlock LAFC? And if they put themselves in a bad position, LAFC will punish them. I feel like the more likely outcome or the one that I'm ever so slightly leaning 54, uh, 46 would be LAFC. So I'm leaning LAFC at the moment in that regard. Rachel, what do you see as what's LAFC's weakness or does, uh, does Rossi just try to antagonize Chiellini into getting an early yellow card? Yeah, I mean, that's literally what I was just about to say is an early yellow card to Chiellini. Um, I, like you said, he's very yellow card prone. Um, I, I was surprised he didn't get one against Seattle. Um, I can't say too much about the Houston game cause I, I really only caught the end of it. Um, but yeah, I think if they get Chiellini with an early yellow and keep him on his toes and, and force LAFC to, to make an uh, earlier in the second half substitution, I think that definitely would go in, in favor of Columbus. Jamie, Giorgio Chiellini is 39 years old. Ilya Sanchez is 33 years old. Neither of them is super mobile. Potentially, maybe then the focus then Rachel is getting both of them early yellow cards. Uh, Jamie, is there a point where you're concerned about 
fatigue or just the age given LAFC has played an MLS record. I I don't have this stat in front of me. It's like 53 competitive matches they played this year, which is just insane as fun as League Cup was. Uh, Jamie, where are your concerns for LAFC? One thing I would say with both of those individuals, but particularly Ilya Sanchez, is one thing I guess that works in his favour when it comes to age is he's never been a player known for great pace or anything like that when he's been in the league previously before LAFC. So I think from that point of view, they'll be fully confident in his abilities to control a game and, and do, be that defensive pivot without actually having to be getting up and down the pitch. And the same for Chiellini. Obviously, he's got pretty mobile defence around him, but he is allowed to to be that slightly more rigid defender and he's more of a, a leader than he is going to be a player. Yeah, you know, sprinting all over the place. So I think, yeah, there is obviously a question of age with LAFC, but then in a, in another way, that could be, as you said, the, the experience we saw against Houston, that could come to the fore again. A lot of these players have been there and done it. And obviously, Chiellini, not in MLS, but he's done it in a Euros final against Bukayo Saka. We saw him pulling back there and that various stuff. So I do think, yeah, there is a lot of, there's a lot more positives, I would say, from LAFC point of view than than then the negatives. It's just a case of, yeah, whether if if Vela isn't firing, then you do have Buanga and they do have so many options at the top end that it can be a case of if one player shuts off, it doesn't necessarily mean the whole team will will struggle. Rachel, I feel like I already know what LAFC's starting eleven is going to be. I mean, I other than I think the only question would be Kellen Acosta as opposed to. Um, maybe, oh, who's the other midfielder that they have? I don't have it in front of me. I, I think Kellen Acosta is the only real question that you have in terms of the starting 11 from the conference finals going into the final. We know it's going to be a three-man midfield from LAFC. We know they're going to be relatively compact. It's going to pull up, be Palacios and Hollingshead out wide. And where they're listed and where they play in the front three, I think is a good question between Buanga, Oliveira, and Carlos Vela. There'll be some free-form jazz as well. I do think, given some of the troubles um Columbus had in possession. I think there's a question of what they do out wide. Do you go with Farsi? Do you go with um, Yaboa out wide? And then really you saw Julian Gressel came in and he changed the game. And I think Julian Gressel is still one of their best indirect set piece takers. And we could see that set pieces could be really critical in this one. Rachel, do we see another Wilford Nancy wrinkle in this one what would you do out wide personnel wise and this is before we even mention kevin molino is still on columbus crew i always always forget about kevin molino being on columbus crew um i don't know i honestly if it ain't broke don't fix it i mean this this lineup from the from the cincinnati game started the comeback um, I don't think I would start Christian Ramirez. I think I would keep him um, as that super sub. I wouldn't mind seeing um, a player like Julian Gressel maybe get the start. Um, but I, I think for the most part, Kevin Molino and, and Christian Ramirez are, are the super subs. Um, I think bring Molino on first. If if you go into halftime, maybe 0-0 or 1-0, or um, maybe bring Molino on in like the 60th minute. But um, I like their lineup for the most part. I don't. I don't have a problem with how they lined up against um, against Cincinnati, but I do hate the lone striker formation. <laughs> yeah, um, 
that was frustrating at times for me, Rachel, though. I mean, the, the two, it's, it's rather than it being a four, three, three, it's, or excuse me, rather than it being a three, four, three from Columbus, it's more of a three, four, two, one. But, you know, Matan was doing a bunch of weird stuff and Rossi was all over the place. I think it's fair to say both front threes for both teams are going to be a little bit of free form jazz. So it's going to be a, a four, three, whatever from LAFC and a three, four, whatever from, Columbus. I, I look at the key X factors from LAFC, and I think it's fairly obvious and chalky. I think it's Dennis Bowanga, certainly. And then I think it's their experience, as we've talked about. They've been here before. They've got a chance to do what I think it's just Houston, DC United, and LA Galaxy have been repeat cup chances, champions. Rachel, none of Seattle's cups were repeats, right? And so yeah. you're looking at, so for the first time since 2011, 2012, you're looking at, um, you're looking at, um, a repeat MLS Cup champion. And I know from a banter standpoint, given what we just talked about with the Hell is Real banter to come out of the, um, Eastern Conference final, certainly the banter on El Trafico Twitter is going to be crazy from this game, no matter what. And this is before we get to the supporters comment. Thank you for including that in the doc, Rachel. Last really big tactical question that we have, um, uh, Jamie, X factors that you look at for Columbus. Obviously, there's Christian Ramirez, but anything else really stand out from you, either personnel or positionally? No, I don't think there is anything massively. I do think one thing that perhaps goes under the radar, particularly in MLS, when there are so many high-scoring games, is, is the goalkeepers. And I think um, Wilfred Nancy has, has heaped a lot of praise on Patrick Schulte and the Columbus girl, and deservedly so. I do think he's had a lot of big moments. Not only in the regular season, but in in um in the playoffs as well. And obviously, say I conceded twice against Cincinnati, but he did still make a number of saves, and he has put in some very good performances, made some important saves. So I do think uh, both teams have very solid keepers, but um, it'll be interesting to see if Shorty is called into action a lot again this game. A uh, really good point on that, Jamie, and I think it's worth pointing out again, Maxime Kripo started for LAFC in the final last year, and I believe this was in stoppage time. I don't think this was inside the 90. Crepeau comes off his line and then obviously has that horrific leg break. And, you know, they have, you know, John McCarthy has to come off and, um, you know, is the penalties hero. And Crepeau is celebrating and FaceTiming with his teammates as he's, you know, in a hospital bed with an elevated leg and about to go into surgery and get a cast on his leg in the final as well. I haven't watched enough from Crepeau to see, has he been hesitant? Coming off of his line, again, LAFC does have a relatively deep line, so it's not like I don't think Columbus is going to have a lot of big open breakaways in this game unless the match gets absolutely out of hand. But do we see the fact that um, Crippo is back starting in MLS Cup where he broke his leg last year? Is that a factor in his psyche in terms of some of those big moments or where there's going to be clearly an opportunity for contact with an opponent? We'll see on that front but let's get to the supporter nuance that we have in everything and again rachel thank you for including this um lafc and the 3252 at bank of california or excuse me at bmo stadium were absolutely lit before the houston game and there were a bunch of flares and there was a bunch of smoke uh jamie this looked like a game this looked like a tuesday night in serbia with a oh who's that team uh that's in there um I can't remember. Um, Red Star Red Belgrade. Star Belgrade. Yeah. Yes. It, it looked like a Red Star Belgrade 
home game with how much red, how much fire. There was clearly smoke many, you know, several minutes into the game. And since then, there has been uh, MLS and LAFC looked at this and they agreed. And there's a fine. There's potential um, supporter privileges that are going to be lost from uh, members of the 3252 or the 3252 on a whole for next season. And then also, uh, Rachel, what was it? We are only going to have for an MLS Cup final, I should point out, there will only be 750 allocated away tickets to LAFC fans. So that is not just a, that is not a only 750 tickets to the 3252. That is LAFC is only getting to then sell and make available to their supporters, their season ticket holders, 750 tickets when it is normally 1500 at times, a little over 2000 for an MLS cup final, depending on the, the layout in the stadium and everything. Um, Rachel, this is a massive punishment. And for this to be handed down, you know, Wednesday night before a final um, is a massive statement by LAFC. I think, you know, safety of the fans and the integrity of the game in that players are able to see what is going on around them is important. But at the same time, MLS and LAFC got a bunch of really good press and how much hypocrisy, Rachel, how hypocritical will it be next year when in the promotion stuff for the start of MLS 360, they include a shot of the 3252 before that game leading into the studio session at 4.30 p.m., excuse me, at 5.30, excuse me, I'm getting my time zones mixed up, at 6 p.m. Eastern time for the start of the the night matches on a Saturday. Um, Well, first and foremost, they have been, the 3252 was given every single opportunity in the article I read um, to use safe smoke, um, and they did not do that. So, um, I, I think that the, the punishment is fair. Um, I don't think it's excessive. I think it's fair. And, um, it is kind of crazy that there's only 750 allocated, um, tickets going to, um, the supporters group. Obviously, some more are, obvi- are welcome to make the trip. Um, but I mean, that's a huge deal in, in what I think lower.com field has like 20,000 seats, um, to only allow less than a thousand allocated tickets. Um, and really, nobody to blame but themselves. Again, every opportunity to use safe smoke, they didn't use that. Um, and that's, of course, dealing with players' health and wellness and, you know, getting smoke in their lungs and whatnot. I remember being at the um, 2019 NWSL final um, in Cary, North Carolina. It was the North Carolina Courage um, and the Chicago Red Stars. And the the Courage had, like, all these, like, flares and stuff on the field and I don't know if it was flares or if it was um, safe smoke, um, but there were also fireworks and stuff too. Um, and players were, you know, walking out of the tunnel. I know that listeners can't see us, but they had their like shirts over their um, over their mouths and their noses, and they were just like fanning it away and everything. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a pretty open outdoor stadium in terms of stadium concepts. But um, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's only seven hundred fifty tickets allotted. Jamie, do you have an? I know flares aren't a big part of English culture and everything. I, I I did not see the part, Rachel, that you mentioned in the article about LAFC had the option to use safe flares and didn't. And so, in that regard, unfortunately, I'm with MLS on this one. I think you know it, if you had someone who was asthmatic just a few sec a uh, few sections away from the 3252, that is a threat to them. And I do think fundamentally, the single biggest thing you have, you know, again, a Red Star Belgrade game 
literally a hundred old, you know, a thousand ultras. Literally, there's 15, 20 plus flares that are in there. And at that end of the stadium, the goalkeeper cannot see the ball. The ability and the inte- the integrity of the game and the safety of the players in order to be able to see what is around them is first and foremost important. But uh, Jamie, what do you make of it? Any hypocrisy there? Or were you just watching from a distance and like, oh, LAFC, that was kind of a cool atmosphere. And then, oh, here we go. I feel quite conflicted because I think coming into it blindly, I would have been quite bullish and saying, I like to see this. Obviously, as you say, it's not something that's particularly big in English football, but you see when you watch the Champions League and Europa League, you have these, yeah, you, you have your Red Star, Belgrade, your young boys and teams like that are are very vocal and do have a lot of the, the pyrotechnics and whatnot. But now, again, having I wasn't aware of the safe smoke aspect and that does feel, yeah, um, you're shooting yourself in the foot in a lot of ways there. It's your own your own downfall most. So, uh, yeah, I do think there is a, a balance to be had. Um, but, I, I mean, you could argue it's, um, it would be unfair then to the Columbus fans that haven't done any wrongdoing. But I would say for such a big event, especially when MLS is trying to be as marketable as possible, this feels like the type of game where you want as many fans in there as possible. So that does feel like a, a big downfall for the league in general, not just not just the LAFC fans. But then I do obviously, as you both said, understand it from the league's perspective when there is an element of safety. So I think, yeah, in general, I, I would say I'm quite conflicted. I want to see both sides of it. I think when done safely is a, a cool aspect of the sport, but as it seems, it wasn't particularly safe. All right, let's move on to the roundtable. I'm trying to find folks. We are podcasting right as the Copa America group stage draw is taking place. We do want to talk Nats. Um, so before we talk about the venues and the teams that are involved, I guess we will go to the other roundtable topics that we have. Rachel, we'll talk a little bit of offseason, roster moves, and free agency as well. Um, firstly, um, Mauricio Pereira from uh, the number 10 do-it-all midfielder for Orlando has announced that he and Orlando City have not been able to come to terms. Obviously, this is still in the context of Oscar Pereira technically being out of contract. And then we heard, what was it last week now, that Dax McCarty has officially said that he will not be returning to Nashville. What does this mean for these two teams? Where within MLS could either of these players land? Chicago. <laughs> um, sorry, too soon, too early. Um, starting at first with Dax McCarty, I think his situation um, is a little bit more... Um, I think he's a little bit more available as, as kind of that utility person for teams. Um, he's he's 36 years old. At the start of the season next year, um, his birthday is in late April. He's going to be 37 years old, so he's getting up there. Um, he did play for Chicago for a few years. I'm sure they would love to have him back um, as somebody who could really help out that midfield and just the team in general. Um, but I, I, th- I think he did a job well done in Nashville. He obviously led the club with a lot of passion, a lot of heart, really, really cared a lot about Nashville SC. Um, And and I think any spot in MLS would be good for him. He'd be an asset to any team, um, despite turning 37 years old. I could see him going um, back to to Chicago. Um, I could see him maybe going with Ben Olsen down in Houston. Um, Seattle is going to need a, a replacement for Nico Ladero, though they'll probably go um, a lot younger. Um, 
LA Galaxy could use help in that midfield as well. So a lot of good options for for a player like Dax McCarty, obviously. Uh, the team. Um, Orlando City, Mauricio Pereira, little bit of a different situation. He's only 33 years old, so he's still um, in what is considered nowadays like the peak of playing soccer. Um, he, I, I don't know if I could see him getting another DP contract with, with an MLS team. Um, I would be surprised if somebody would give him a DP contract. Um, I can see him getting paid pretty nicely, but, but not quite with that label on it. Um, again, I think there's a lot of really good options for him to go to, whether it be in the Western conference or the Eastern conference, but I expect, I expect both players to, to stay in MLS, um, and not go overseas down down to Liga Mekis or in or over to Central South America. Um I, I expect both of them to stay in MLS, um, to be starters on whatever new team that, that they make it on. Um and it, it wouldn't wouldn't be surprising to me to see them get scooped up early in the offseason. Jamie, I'll come to you next for the ongoing coaching carousel that we have. Obviously, Chris Armis and Phil Neville are both settled into their new positions at Colorado Rapids and Portland Timbers, respectively. And then absolute schadenfreude, just running it back with a team that is completely incompetent. I don't know how Frank Klopas still has a job at Chicago Fire in any aspect, but he's back at Chicago, going to Chicago. Um Jamie, feel free to give your two cents on that. But just going over the current openings that we have right now, New York Red Bulls still open, um, obviously um, looking to fill their front office position before they replace Troy Lesane at the head coaching position. Hernan Lasada out at one year after one year with CF Montreal, where he did decently well. Rachel sheds a tear for his bomber jacket. Uh, Charlotte FC also has an opening, Pamo Duka was a finalist for the Colorado Rapids. Potentially there's some internal interest from him, but Tom Bogert and others have reported Dean Smith and um, Frank Lampart um, are both candidates there. Still have an opening at DC United at the head coach position with um, uh, Wayne Rooney leaving. And then uh, with Minnesota United, they've resolved the situation in terms of their front office situation, still working on the head coach. And Jamie, no news on... The New England Revolution front, though, Robin Frazier, formerly of the Rapids, was connected with that. And then let me make sure that I'm not missing anybody. Um, John Herdman's officially now at Toronto, and that is everybody. Jamie, your thoughts on any and all of this, and uh, where do you think the the Revs could look? Uh, First, I'll go back to what Rachel was speaking about, and I think I'd like to show throw the revolution in there for Dax McCarthy. I think Matt Pulse has been relied upon too much in the last few years and I think in what should be a transition year with a new head coach and a new era I think even if it's just for a year at that age I think McCarthy would still be a very good option and then talking of the revolution as you mentioned there's been Tom, Bo- Tom Bogan as usual reporting and then there's also more locally Seth McCumber and Tommy Quinlan have both um, been doing their, their great work and there's been to be fair there are a lot of names in the mix and it's just yeah, trying to trying to make sense of it all and trying to trying to work out who who are the more likely ones. We've seen Gio Savarese pop up quite regularly for the Revolution, and obviously formula formerly of the Timbers. I think that would be very interesting. I think there's a a fair bit of ambition there for the Revs, and I would also be fairly intrigued by the Caleb Porter hire as well. I think um, 
his time in Columbus maybe didn't end excellently, but um, with what he did there, obviously he did he did lead them to MLS Cup in that uh, COVID year, which was um, a very very solid season for him. And then I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, Matt, about the Robin Fraser links. Whether you think that would be a good fit or not, I think obviously from what he has done in Colorado, did a solid job. And then um, two other names in. Uh, the reports on those names I mentioned, you've got Bob Bradley and Dom Kinnear, which I say are two less favourable options from, from my point of view. I think, obviously, Bob Bradley's proven what he can do in MLS, but then further afield, he's had issues in recent years and, and not quite delivered. Um, and then, obviously, from an English point of view, I can speak on the Charlotte links. I think Frank Lampard would be a hugely interesting option, obviously, as someone that's played in the league. Um, but in general, when you look at his, his, his managerial position so far, Chelsea was quite hit and miss. Everton was hit and miss. And both of those is probably more miss than hit. And then, uh, Derby County was, was solid enough. Um, so I do, I do think he'd be an interesting, interesting appointment. I thought Latanzi was, was doing a solid job for, for the most part. So I do think that it's a, it's a bigger job to fill. It's not as if it was a, a, cal- a complete calamity so there is some expectations there and then Dean Smith is another interesting one given Brentford and Aston Villa he did a solid job but then gone on more recently with Norwich and Leicester to, to flatter to deceive so I do think yeah of those two I'd be looking more at Lampard probably and then the, the Freddie Juarez links the Seattle assistant is another interesting one but um, yeah from a Revs point of view I would say I like the Savarese and Caleb Porter rooms most and then, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, Matt, about Robin Fraser. Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on a few things there, Jamie. Um, the only thing that I've been able to confirm, at least of the reports that have been there about Robin, is that the LA Galaxy and then initially, not more, not recently, Toronto FC both expressed interest. Obviously, you've got at LA, or excuse me, LA Galaxy. At Galaxy, you've obviously got Greg Vanny, who is a longtime teammate with Robin Frazier, both LA Galaxy 1996. That is your original listeners starting center back pair for the LA Galaxy in 1996. And then obviously they coached for a number of years in Toronto together. That would be as an assistant, obviously. And then the other assistant opportunity that he's been linked with has been NYCFC. I think all of the links that Robin Frazier has been to are certainly deserved. I'm disappointed that he didn't get the, um, he didn't get the, Portland job because I think Frazier's done a really good job both as an assistant and as a starter in what he's done with um, particularly Spanish language players from Central and South America. He did a really good job of that when he was with the Rapids. And so I think he could, despite being Jamaican and not being super fluent in Spanish could help with that, continue that culture at Portland Timbers. Um, we'll see how Fizzer does with that because obviously he doesn't speak a lick of Spanish. And this is before we even get into the um, social component of Portland being a very progressive city and Phil Neville's past comments that he's made about women that we don't have time to go into. Um, I think New England's an interesting one for me. J- Jamie, just in uh, in the Zoom chat, put the thumbs down, folks, in case you were wondering. But um, moving on to New England, Jamie, I think if you're looking for um, Robin, I think I don't think there's an obvious um, who, what which coach is Robin Frazier a part of in terms of that coach's coaching tree. I don't know that there's an obvious single answer given the diversity of his background 
as a player and then as a head coach. But when I spoke with him and I brought up Bruce Arena either in general or specifically when they were playing New England Revolution, he always had a really good idea. And I think part or he always had a really good answer. And then of his own accord, he would bring this up about Bruce, both in the context of playing for him for the club and then obviously in Robin's time as a fringe national team center back. And so if you're looking at somebody who I think is going to have some more progressive tactical ideas i think robin certainly checks that box a player who's a little bit more open to young players with what new england's trying to do there i think that's a net gain as opposed to bruce arena but you still get the bruce like i want to be a good locker room guy we want to have a good club culture and everything we don't have anybody there's no egos allowed on this team and fundamentally robin um kevin cabral is the first star player or big money foreign dp that Robin Frazier has been involved with as an assistant or as a head coach where the system wasn't set around for them to have success and the team and that player had success. So I think about what Robin Frazier could do with a Carlos heel and who knows what's going on at the forward position, I think would be really interesting and he could have a lot of success. So I, I would support, I think it would be a good hire, Jamie. And I think the fact that Robin's gotten so many opportunities reportedly, both for head coaching opportunities and assistant coaching opportunities speaks that the, the market as a whole understands what he his situation when he was at Colorado Rapids and aren't holding it against him. I don't think he gets the New England job, though. Unfortunately, I think Robin will likely need to be an assistant next year. I think he'd absolutely be a net positive with John Herdman at Toronto, with LA Galaxy and Greg Vanny, or certainly even um, going to NYCFC um, as well. Um, I, Robin will have no hard troubles finding work um i do wonder is he maybe holding out for a good opportunity or is he not going to accept something unless it's a really good offer because he is still based in denver brendan plone from the Denver post has run into him at king supers just in the last month and um he's got one of his daughters is at cu boulder playing soccer and then his youngest is currently in her senior year of high school and is going to ucla she'll be graduating in mar in may or april time and so I wonder, does he maybe hang around a little bit, wait for that to get settled as well? And then would there then be interest in joining Greg Vanny in L.A., where obviously um, one of his daughters will be a freshman at UCLA? All good questions that I'm wondering that I don't know the answer to, Jamie. Um, I would be happy to praise Robin Frazier upon getting hired at New England Revolution. And um, uh, Robert Kraft, if you're listening and you're interested in a letter of recommendation, feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to be a unofficial, unapproved reference for Robin Frazier. Speaking of the Colorado Rapids, however, just in the last couple hours, Tommy Scoops over at The Athletic has reported that Colorado Rapids are in discussions with Zach Steffen, who is a goalkeeper um, with Manchester City. He spent the 2022-2023 season on loan at Middlesbrough. Form wasn't super great. That saw him miss out on the 2020 two World Cup squad with the United States men's national team and then Borough were defeated by Coventry City in the promotion playoffs so Borough are back in the championship. Zach Steffen is back with Manchester City. He's had a knee injury that has had him out for the first half of the European season so August to now in terms of the 2023-24 season in Europe. Um, this caught me completely off guard. I don't know how to make sense of this. I would want to know what the nature of the negotiations and discussions are with this. If this is a loan with an option to buy or they're buying at a really steep discount, um, then I could be convinced that this is a good move. My concern here is that Stefan's been injured 
The Rapids already think they have their starter in Marco Ilicha. I have heard and reported that they paid um, more than 750k, but less than a million for the Serbian goalkeeper this past summer when they made that permanent. So if you're telling me, you know, Zach Steffen was bought from Columbus Crew by Man City for 70 million pounds, excuse me, 70 million dollars. Seven million dollars. Wow, I'm getting my numbers mixed up, folks. Seven million US dollars in summer of 2019. And so if you're telling me that you're getting him for less than a million and he's not making more than Marco Illich, then I could be talked into this. But I, I, I can't rationalize paying any more than half a million dollars in a transfer fee given where the Rapids are financially given this is already a position that they feel relatively settled on if this is a free loan with an option to buy and the option to buy is less than a million dollars and they think that Marco Ilicha will do so good in the first part of the season that Europe will come back on him come back in for him and they'll make a profit on that potentially in the summer and then use that money on a domestic international and potentially rehabilitate his career i could be talked into this if you're telling me that zach stefan is going to make more than say 400k i could be convinced of this but just this team needs a six and they might need a 10 and they definitely need a winger and they have no money and if they're going to keep rafael navaja navajo and he's actually as good as they think he is, then you got to write a check this summer for four and a half million dollars based on the option to buy. I can't make heads or tails of that in that regard. And this is to say nothing of the fact of we thought that Tim Howard was down bad coming from mid-table Everton to Commerce City, Colorado. I don't know that there's has there been a bigger drop off in terms of this the status and the tier of the club than Zach Steffen going from Manchester City winning the treble winning the Champions League to then coming to the Rapids who almost won the wooden spoon last year. I don't know how to make sense of that, but I am constantly refreshing my Twitter feed folks because we're in the middle of the um, FS1 show to do the groups for um the copa america and fox typically is taking way too long they're taking an hour and a half to do something they could do in five minutes so we'll talk about the host venues and see where we go from there i'll just list them off right now there are 14 of them um i'll list the locations you can probably figure out the stadiums Eh, i'll list the stadiums too um so they're playing at allegiance stadium home of the raiders in las vegas um jerry world in arlington texas near dallas bank of america stadium in charlotte north carolina um kansas city gets two venues will be at both children's mercy park and arrowhead stadium for kansas city Exploria Stadium in Orlando, Hard Rock Stadium, home of the Dolphins in Miami Gardens, Florida, Levi Stadium, where the Niners play in Santa Clara, California, will be at the Benz in Atlanta, MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, outside um, the New York, New Jersey area, NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, Q2 Stadium, home of Austin FC in Austin, Texas, SoFi in Inglewood, California, and then State Farm Stadium Um in Glendale, Arizona. So that is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 NFL stadiums. And then the three MLS based venues are Casey, Orlando, and Austin. Rachel, your thoughts on these venues and the geographic balance between them? And any concern or frustration that the Pacific Northwest got snubbed? Um, I think the East Coast got really snubbed too. Not really 
many good options in the in the East Coast. I mean, everything. Uh, Exploria Stadium, as somebody who lived in, in Florida and has been to that stadium many times, I don't think they should um, host a lot of things until they get a lot of issues in the area solved. Um, East Coast doesn't really have that many options. It's pretty much all Central and then on the West Coast. It is kind of surprising not to see anything in the Pacific Northwest, um, especially in the summer before you know, football season and all that, all that stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of over California and Texas hosting everything. Um, that's, I, I know that's an issue that, um, has been brought up with the CONCACAF Women's Gold Cup as well, that there's only four locations for that. Um, and it's, it's just both of the LA stadiums, Dignity, Health, um, and BMO, and then Snapdragon for San Diego, and then Houston. Um, so I'm kind of over the whole California, Texas thing. There are other places to play. Um, and, and you don't grow the game if you keep going to the same places every single time. Um, so I'm not really thrilled with the options, um, but it is what it is. Nice to see Charlotte get on there, though. Jamie, you'll be watching from home, so it doesn't factor too much in for you. Maybe some slightly different time zone changes. So those afternoon games uh, on the East will be fun. And then you won't be able to watch the games on the West Coast, probably. Do you care about the venues? Does it matter? No, I think even with my MLS interest, and it will be cool to see some of the stadiums, I think, in general, barring the time zone differences, it's not of huge interest to me, particularly, obviously, given that Gillette is not one of the options. All right, then. Let's move on. I'm, I guess we're going to try and talk about the groups here, folks. So we've only pulled through. Um, so there's four groups, A, B, C, and D, and we only have three teams through. So we're going to kind of live react to this. Um, group A has Argentina, Peru, and Chile as of right now. Mexico is in Group B with Ecuador and Venezuela. And then the United States as of right now is with Uruguay and Panama. And they're still drawing... Um, Group D, um, so, uh, excuse me, they have, uh, Brazil and Colombia as of right now. So, Rachel, initial thoughts, uh, Panama should be CONCACAF cannon fodder for the United States, um, and, uh, future Inter-Miami striker Luis Suarez in Uruguay. How excited are we for a 1-1 draw in Poophousery against the States? Well, and it looks like Bolivia's in there as well, too, um, uh, U.S. got a really, really, um, if, if they don't advance, then shame on them. Um, yeah, I mean, not too much to say about Bolivia. Don't really see too much of them. Um, Uruguay, they're getting older, not really getting younger. Um, the U.S. is obviously a much younger team now. Panama, again, the, the cannon fodder. But then again, CONCACAF is wild and wacky and weird, so you never know. I'm just devastated that Costa Rica might be in the toughest group. <laughs> I mean, what do they have to do to get some sort of um, reprieve? Yeah, I mean, just looking at this, Rachel, you know, I have to think right now, Colombia is going to be it'll it'll depend on who that the third and the fourth teams are right now. But I think there's um, I think Group B is relatively balanced because you've got Ecuador in there who did really good at the World Cup and Venezuela will be scrappy, though not very good talent wise. I think it's fair to say the U.S. got a relatively you know, good luck of the draw. You avoid Colombia and Ecuador in terms of the pool. Uruguay, 
We're at the World Cup, but obviously they're older. Luis Suarez will be old. They should be able to deal with that. And Panama and Bolivia, for me, should be two wins probably. So I, I, I'm going to say it right now, Rachel. Um, unless there's a massive streak of injuries in the summer with a bunch of the young core, which is very possible for the United States. This team's never healthy. Um, I think the U.S. should win Group C straight up. Um, Jamie, your initial reactions to um, to the group, or are you just excited to see Messi? I, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by how confident you are. I think, obviously, there are a lot of Uruguayan pieces that are aging, but I do think you look at it when they have uh, Fede Valverde at Rumford, Darwin Nunes is like chaotic as he can be. He has been scoring recently for the country, and then Ronald Raujo as well, one of the better defenders in the world at the moment for Barcelona. I do think they do have some very solid players, so it'll be, I'll be interested to see how how that game goes. As you say, I imagine that'll be battling for top spot. Um, so yeah, I'll be intrigued to see see how the uh, how US can do out of that. So the draw has just finished up. So just to do this for the sake of completeness, folks, uh, Group A, Argentina, Peru, Chile, and then a playoff between Canada and Trinidad and Tobago. I think we know how that's going to go. Um, Group B, Mexico, Ecuador, Venezuela, and then the playoff between Costa Rica and Honduras. Rachel, I think you know how that's going to go. Group C, U.S., Uruguay, Panama, Bolivia, and then Group D, Brazil, Colombia, Paraguay, and then Jamaica. Um, Rachel, I'm kind of leaning, I, I think in terms of the balance of power and all four teams being competitive, I think if Costa Rica gets through past Honduras and everything, I think Group B is the group of death. And I mean, poor Canada has to play Messi, and then Chile and Peru are going to be difficult. I think the U.S. is relatively chalk, and then I think it's... Um, I think, unfortunately, I would like to see Jamaica challenge, but I just think like they drew the in terms of that second team. I think Brazil and Colombia was the toughest stack that they had. I think Mexico or Ecuador, they could have had a chance again. I think they could have done something against uh, familiarity with U.S. and then playing Uruguay. And then I think I think if they were in group A, it's probably thinking, yeah, we're going to lose to Argentina, but then we could do something against Chile and uh, Peru. Rachel, your thoughts on potentially the Ticos being in the group of death? Well, I don't give them a easy pass against Honduras because in the Nations League quarterfinals, Costa Rica played Panama twice, of course, one home and one away. Um, they lost 3-0 at home and then they lost 3-1 to away. So um, it's been a rough spell. And then before that, in the September window, they lost to the United Arab Emirates Four to one um, at a neutral location in Croatia. Yeah, not great. Um, I am nervous <laughs> for the Ticos. I mean, really, really nervous for the Ticos. Honduras is is a team that is no pushover. Um, we we know the kind of Concacaf chaos that they bring to the table. Um, I they they're playing in a neutral location. Um, in in the beginning of March, um, out in Frisco, in in Texas, um. I think Costa Rica will travel fans a lot better than Honduras, but still, um, anything can happen. And really, I don't give them, I don't give them an easy, um, an easy go here. Gustavo Alfaro is their uh, new manager. He is an Argentine, um, football manager, but his, his showing, um, in recent games has not been impressive. So I don't know if they need to switch up their, their roster and bring in some new players. Um, is it time to officially kiss Joel Campbell goodbye from the national team? Um, that's, I think that's a big question that needs to be asked. 
Um, it's clearly not working defensively right now. They're, they're trying to figure out the goalkeeper um, position with what's going to happen without Taylor Navas. Um, just not a lot of experience back there. Um, so I'm intrigued to see what Costa Rica does. They're, they obviously need to, to figure something out before March 23rd, but I don't know. I don't, I don't give them an easy, you know, cut and dry victory again against Honduras at all. Oh, your poor Ticos, Rachel. All right, folks, we've been going well over an hour. This is pretty long for a last word SC episode, but obviously we had a lot to talk about, um, especially with MLS Cup. So let's get to pickums and then get out of here with our last words. Rachel, I will come to you first. MLS Cup final, Saturday, December 9th, 2023, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on Apple TV on Fox over the air in English and then on Fox Deportes in Spanish. Columbus Crew hosting LAFC at lower.com field. Rachel, who you got, why, in how many minutes? Christian Ramirez scores a banger in I'm gonna I'm gonna say it goes ninety minutes. I'm gonna say it goes ninety minutes and it's gonna be two to one. Who scored the other two goals? Rossi, Rossi, I'm gonna Diego Rossi, um, Chiellini. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Give give us chaos or give us death. Um, I'm gonna go pretty basic here and say Bolonga. I don't think Vela gets on the on the goal sheet. Okay, then, Uh, Jamie, who you got, and do you have Christian Ramirez heroics as well? I don't. I think it will go to extra time, but I don't think he'll be. The winner, I'm going to say, maybe Molina off the bench instead. I think, obviously, when the crew won the MLS Cup a few years back, it was there was, what, only a 1,000 people there. So I think the fans deserve this. They've now got the moment to pack out the newish stadium. Um, I'm ho- I'm rooting for Columbus. I'm hoping the, the players show up as well. So I'm going to say 2-1 as well, but after extra time with Kevin Molina to score the decisive goal. Yeah, um, I don't know how we haven't mentioned this, folks, as the guy wearing a Save the Crew scarf. But yeah, well, what a turnaround if you're talking about three, four years ago, Columbus Crew potentially go from losing their team, hosting a final during COVID and obviously winning that trophy to now new stadium, um, new ownership, new head coach, a bunch of new, exciting, very expensive players and everything and potentially there. Like this is the this is the coming full circle approach and everything. I, I think if L- if if Columbus Crew end up winning on saturday then in their 30 for 30 on save the crew the opening of the closing credits should have highlight reels from this game but we'll see um i'm gonna make it a third different prediction on this one folks i'm gonna go 2-1 to lasc it'll happen in 90 minutes give me dennis bowanga and then a garbage goal i like i don't even like Diego Palacios tap in Michael Murillo. It's going to be an unlikely goal scorer from LAFC from chaos in the box, not Ryan Hollingshead. Um, and then I'll say uh, Cucho from Rossi for the goal for Columbus crew, but LAFC will win it two one and they will do it in regular time. That does it for us folks. Uh, let's get out of here. Rachel, any last words? Um, just a thank you to our sponsor Icarus FC. Um, Friends, are you tired of wearing the same old uniforms with cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas? Are you looking for a completely unique and custom kit for your Sunday League squad, adult, or even pro team? Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. 
with the motto, any design you want. Seriously, let them help you create your new custom kit today at IcarusFC.com. Um, I know Raheem talked about it, so I'm going to keep it very, very, very brief, but just a huge congratulations um, to Christine Sinclair, who played her final um, national team match this past week with um, the Canadian women's national team. Just um, outstanding, outstanding player. That record is going to live for a very long time um, in both the men's and women's game as, as the leading goal scorer in international history. Um, shout out to Christine Sinclair for paving the way. Well said there, Rachel. Uh, Jamie, any last words? I know we I know we gave you your, your testimonial moment and thanking you, but anything else you want to say? Uh, yeah, normally I have something, but I just can't think of anything. But I'll mention, obviously, annoyingly, the Lioness is winning, what, 6-0 the other night and still not qualifying for the Olympics with last-minute goals. That was painful, but no, that's all I've got. So I just say thank you again to everyone for reading and watching and listening. All right. Don't be a stranger, Jamie. We'd be happy to have you on back on any time uh, schedule permitting. Um, and certainly okay. at, at some point you and I have to meet in person because um, I've got to get more of the English football in me on a next vacation in the next couple of years. Um, sure. My okay. last word, um, I want to thank our other sponsor, Roughneck Scarves. They are an official scarf supplier of MLS, USL, NWSL, and U.S. soccer merchandise. Get your custom scarves for your group, team, or office at roughneckscarves.com. I have to assume Roughneck Scarves has some U.S. MNT Copa America swag, so go on, check that out if you're looking for that. Only other last word that I have is apparently in all of the hoopla for Copa America tonight, Fox also announced that uh, Copa America has an official mascot, and it's this weird bird hybrid that straight up looks like the Kansas Jayhawk. Jamie, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but Rachel, like, look at this. This is like CGI Pixar Kansas Jayhawk character right now. He's not as unnerving as some of these mascots are, so we'll see whether or not he's cartoonish. I don't know how to feel about it. I don't particularly care. Um, you know, um, it's it's fine, I guess. The the dog was fine in 1994, for example, that we had for um, the U.S. World Cup. But that'll do it for us, folks, um, on this episode of Last Word SC. Follow us on all the socials at Last Word SC. Check out all of our content at lastwordonsports.com backslash soccer. And rate, review, share, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search LWOS or Last Word on Sports Radio. You'll find us and a bunch of other great content. Um, we'll see you hopefully within 36 hours of full time on Saturday to put a bow on the season and then get out of here for the winter. Thank you for listening.